Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Goat Group Perspectives podcast, where we will be sharing the behind the scenes and untold stories of the teams, campaigns, and work being done across Goat Group, all through the eyes and experiences of the people who make it happen. Each episode will feature voices from different teams and departments, giving us a lens into how each of us not only contributes to the success of the business, but how we can all make an impact on its future. I'll be your host, Randy Crater, Director of Corporate Comms here at Goat Group. And this week, we have Jerome Thompson and Jason Park, who started here in 2016 as our second and third authenticators. Today, they're leaders within our authentication strategy team, overseeing global training and performance. We'll hear from them on how they landed at GOAT, what it was like in the early days working from a two-room office, the notorious Black Friday, and the evolution of the company as we grew from one warehouse to a global business that revolutionized the entire sneaker and apparel industries. Hey everybody, I'm Jerome Thompson. Um, authentication training manager here at Goat Group under the Ops Org, and I've been at Goat for seven years. Hi everyone, Jason Park, um, senior manager, authentication performance team, and just like Jerome, I've been here also seven years. So, um, Jason, we'll start with you. Yeah, uh, give us a little bit of background. Were you always a sneaker guy as a kid? Where is it something you came into like high school or college mm-hmm. or, or where did, where did sneakers start making their way into your life? Yeah, always loved footwear since like a toddler. Um, my first favorite pair of shoes were actually cowboy boots. Okay. So yeah, as a toddler, um, you know, my folks, you know, my parents let me know that I like, I would never want to take them off. Um, you know, being Korean American, living in a, Korean American household, we got to take off the shoes before we go into the house. <laughs> so I guess they remember that. And I just see photos of me in like soccer shorts, rocking cowboy boots. And I guess I loved them. But from that time, you know, whenever we'd go back to school shopping for sneakers, like I just enjoyed it so much. Looking forward to getting that pair for yeah. the rest of the year. Um, and then that just grew into, you know, a more love of like the sneakers I love today. Once I got into like basketball and introduced to Michael Jordan and got my first pair of J's. And once I got that first pair of, of fours, I was just on the path. Michael Jordan had that impact on all of us growing up in the 90s, right? We were all watching, yeah. watching him play, and it, it was obviously impactful, and obviously the shoes sold themselves. So, uh, Jerome, what about you? How did you get into it all? Um, I was always around it. I was a little younger. My cousins were big into basketball. They all had, like, the the new signature shoe every year. And I, I didn't really pay attention to it until, like, you get older, you start understanding like fashion, et cetera. I got more into it when I got a little older because I didn't. I, I was a big Jordan fan, but I wasn't too into basketball yet. Maybe mm-hmm. I caught a second wave when it was on the Wizards. And then I think when uh, 2003, like when I'm like in middle school, I started getting really into it. Yeah. Yeah, I seen that retro card and I got like obsessed. I'm like, I want to have everything on that <laughs> retro card. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you caught Michael on his, you know, not yeah. his greatest year. He yeah, he was breaking dunks. He was breaking dunks. I was like, ooh, this is the guy. Everybody <laughs> no, no. I remember he was great. I still, I still caught that wave, the yeah. highlights. How did you pay for him? You know, oh, if you're yeah. a young guy, like, were you out cutting grass? What were you doing? Um, my family owned a restaurant, so I would work okay. there on the side. Like, when I go to school, and then on the weekends, I'll help out do small things like fill the napkin dispensers or, you know, yeah, salt and paper. The hard labor. Yeah, that little small, <laughs> tiny little labor, like, and I'll, like, just, just earn the, like, learn the value of a dollar and things like that. Yeah. And with that money, I would just, I would hold it and I would save it to get, like, the new Jordan. I was a grade school at six and a half, so at that time, the Jordan one I bought was uh, 2003. The first one I bought, but my money was. $81. That's pretty expensive. That's you know, pretty for up the there. time, right? Yeah, that's pretty they, up You know, there. you're a young guy. Like, that's pretty up there, That's yeah. a lot of napkin folding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took a couple of weeks. That's an obsession. That's, that's really yeah. cool. All right, Jason, what about you? Was there a time when you think back, I kind of know more about this stuff than a lot of my friends, or I, I kind of I, I like this enough that maybe this is something I, I'm really passionate about and want to do something with it? Not sure if there was like a moment where I felt like I knew more um, than sneakers than like my friends or like others. But there was a point where I realized that I loved them more than, mm-hmm. than the people I felt like around me or just in general. But yeah, I think maybe when I got the twos, the Chicago, uh, the, the two lows, mm-hmm. um, and that was like the high school time. Um, it was, wasn't really a popular shoe. 
Um, but for me, like, I really loved it, like, the design. It, I mean, it was a Jordan brand uh, sneaker. Um, you know, friends made fun of me because I had them, you know, because yeah, yeah. it just wasn't, like, a, a popular J. And at the time, like, my friends were wearing different types of shoes, but, like, I loved them yeah. and wasn't, like, you know, embarrassed. And I just, like, I think that's, I kind of just really, I guess, realized that, like, I love, you know, just, like, what I love more than maybe, yeah. like, people around me. Do you, were, was there something special about how you got those? I often think about, like, myself growing up and, and sneakers to me or getting a new pair of sneakers was once a year going back to school. Probably at Christmas you asked for the ones you didn't get at school. Yep. But it wasn't something that I was constantly getting, so I, I, I protected them. Like, they were, these were something I care about, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I didn't earn these, but these are something that I, I, you know, I asked Santa for, right? And Santa showed up and delivered them to me. The way you described it um, about, like, really valuing them and taking care of them, I think that's how I learned that was a little bit different, too. Yeah. Break out the, uh, the toothbrush, make my own sure. solution as a kid. Yeah. Parents were really happy. Because just as you shared, like, it was Christmas birthday for those sneakers oh, yeah, as a yeah. kid yeah. and then we'd have them for the year and i just trying to keep them as, as nice as possible yeah yeah it was before like the jason marks and stuff exactly. the world. it was like i remember it was like that kiwi white like you know yeah like you yeah. painted on your sneakers essentially to get rid of I remember, yeah it was like that white out type of stuff <laughs> yeah. that you know, make your shoe look like it's brown and yeah. now it's white on this side <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you just don't touch it yeah it's not white and you're Definitely. all set yeah that's funny one thing about me, I, I cleaned my shoe. I'm like maybe 12 years old after everywhere. Oh, really? I'll put it back in the box. And then, which is crazy. I'm, I'm, I never even think I told anybody this. But like during winter break, I would take all my shoes out. Maybe I had like 20 or so shoes. Yeah. I would clean the, the top to bottom, even the outsole, and I nice. wouldn't even wear them for the whole summer. I'm going to preserve them. I don't even want to like, get them dirty during the. During, you can't get any during the winter grass, or summer, the, the grass or summer, stains, yeah. those grass stains yeah. are killer. <laughs> during summer or anything, I'm, I'm not wearing them. I'm wearing like some beaters or yeah. beaters or like particularly shoes that you don't care about. And yeah. then so all my like, why are your shoes? Like, why are your shoes always look clean? Those are new. I'm like, these are old. You know, the internet was pretty young back yeah. in early 2000s, late 90s. You know, I'm sure we were all on like AIM, right? Mm. Like late night, like <laughs> staying up. I don't know if you know half of people know what AIM is anymore. Yeah. We date ourselves by doing that. But um, how did you even get into it? Like, how did you know that there was like this whole ecosystem out there that you could call and track these things down? Just, um, just conversations amongst people that did it too, as well. It was a, it was like a small subculture, but then you hear about things like, oh, I got this shoe from this store. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna frequent that store now. Yeah. I'm gonna go to that mm-hmm. that that. Um, I don't even know, like a vintage store or or frequent this uh these threads for on um different platforms just to make sure I'm I'm up to date with what's being dropped at these different places. Um, yeah. So it was just like a, a matter of just communication at that time. It wasn't really big or large, and just literally calling the stores a lot was the thing that we did back in the day. You, you had no other option. There was no mm-hmm. <laughs> Instagram to let me see what we yeah, yeah. stock. At that time, it was hound the store, and they'd be like, oh, we do not have them yet. Yeah, like, yeah. leave me alone. Yeah, like, you or come, you come an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, or if you're like me, just after school, let's frequent them all every day. Let me see if they have them in the window, maybe. Yeah, wow. yeah it was like that. What was like, the sneaker buying and selling experience when you first became a sneakerhead? Um, pretty much non-existent yeah. for the most part. I mean, it, it was always there, maybe through, like, mutual friends and et cetera. But as, like, a marketplace, a secondary marketplace, there was— nothing there really I think I bought the Jordan 3's off of somebody's feet once like that's how it was it was like that if you really wanted the shoe it was not that easy to find were people buying and selling on the forums you go to though that was years later it got a little bit easier forums they had market like buy sell market forum threads and then you had uh, maybe Craigslist places uh, like that sketches, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so you're doing real I mean I, I did some real I'm looking back I'm like dude what the hell was I, was I doing yeah. meeting people like I'm like y'all get off can you meet me at like 12 I'm like over here like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at 12 p.m. Like, that could have ended bad but yeah. yeah that's you didn't think like it was it was still a small community where it wasn't as unsafe I mean there's always been things like big camp outs and stuff like the dunks and things that were like really ridiculous but back in that time it wasn't as um, risky yeah. As it became later, when the, the sneakers are being pro- uh, profitable, I, I also bought some off Craigslist. It was that was just what was uh, available. Jason and Jerome's passion for footwear eventually led them to work in the sneaker industry. With Jason at a shoe distribution company and Jerome working part time at Finish Line just to get the employee discounts. One night, Jerome meets Dyson and Goat's first authenticator, Vince Hill, 
when they come into the store during one of his rare shifts. That's how I actually got introduced to Vince when he came into uh, the finish line one day, right? I, he came there one one night, actually, when we were really busy. And we talked, I remember had the Royal Ones from 2013 at the time. They were like really expensive shoes. Like one, they're going for like one grand, which is kind of unnormal at the time. Now it's like a common occurrence. But um, I, was like, I was talking about them. I'm like, yeah, you, you're, you're bold for wearing them. I haven't been, but I'm not going to wear them probably. Like, I always look at them and put it back in a box, which is bad. People wear your shoes. I do not remember where GOAT came up in the conversation, but I remember telling him, oh, yeah, I worked in, I, I work with Forum, like a, a Nike talk, and, and I help people do that. I do that for like, the authentication portion. Oh, I love doing that. It's fun. And then he told me, like, hey, take my, can I take your number down? I get my email. And then we, we spoke from there, and that's how it started. I think they, they went back to the finish line a couple of times, but I was never there because I worked like once a month. Mm. <laughs> and then I ended up running to him again, and yeah. That's how it that's how it started. So do you remember how you felt coming in that first day? I remember first day walking in, my feet were already killing me and wearing some like two thousand one bread ones, which was a never like standing in your stand all day <laughs> in those shoes. But um to the left of me was Vince and Vincent Hill, co founders was was Dyson actually looking at product. So he's over here authenticating the low level. And then behind me on the other side of on my right was Eddie and him on the computer. Um, I thought he was just doing codes and stuff at the time. I didn't know. <laughs> like, it took me a while to figure out how this dude's a co-founder as well because um, it was just that chill of a vibe. Everybody was just relaxed, very startup vibe, yeah. um, very, very family-oriented environment. I remember just remember vividly Sin was doing a lot of the work, wearing all the hats, recruiting, making a sign-up for all of our paperwork and stuff for work, and then he's over here wrapping the product <laughs> right next to me with the clear paper. We had the clear wrapping paper with the air goat sticker that that Lauren, uh, who's like our, I believe our fourth employee that was remote, created the air goat logo, that the Billy goat. Um, yeah, that was like the the earliest memory that I had. And then at the end of the day, I remember my feet are killing me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first day uh, I remember really clearly. Um, Jerome actually opened the door for me. I was wearing some white fly knits, and the, one of the first things he said after saying, "Hey, I'm Jerome," was, "Hey, I like your shoes." And that, like, welcoming and, like, kindness of that first day, um, you know, really carried on through my entire experience, especially as an authenticator. Um, yeah, but for myself, you know, when I first started, I didn't know how to authenticate. You know, I knew I loved sneakers, and I was just looking around at, like, at the operation and see, seeing what, like, you, Vince, and Daishin, and everyone, um, you know, was doing. And I just wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the feeling in the room. Like you guys were all building something. It felt like you could really get involved, really put your thumb on it. Yeah. It was a feeling in the room and like the job itself, like I really looked at as um, a skill I wanted to develop, almost like an, like an apprenticeship. And I had these like great masters or like teachers around me. Um, and that's really how it got like really grabbed me, like my interest and and it just grew over time as I learned more about the people around me and also learned how to authenticate and more about sneakers every day. Like, Jerome, you're like a sneaker encyclopedia. Like just a wealth of information um, and just understanding of just like sneakers in general. But I just learned something about sneakers like every single day, which was great. Tell us a little bit about how everyone's scope of work shifted to cover some of these areas that had to be done. Do, does anything stick out? You know, in the early days, it, it seemed like everything needed to be done by anyone. And for me, like when I saw like our leaders, um, you know, we'd start the day, Daishan put on the pot of coffee, right, to get us all fueled. But just seeing like the, the different types of, I guess, hats that they would wear. Um, for example, like I would see Eddie take out the trash every day you know, just to make sure that the warehouse was clean. So that's what motivated me for me to take on that task, right? And for Dyson to be, you know, getting that last rack of shoes on like a long Friday. I remember so clearly like asking him for help, like, hey, you think I could get help with these shoes? And boom, you know, just as a fellow authenticator, you know, pick up where I left off. It was just really cool just to see everyone, you know, you know, do what it took to, to make sure everything, you know, the day went well. And specifically just for leadership to just lead with such like humility that would really inspire me like all of my, all of my days here. Some of the things that I saw 
um, you know, when, when really the orders were picking up and it was getting busier in 2016, is that I think I was coming to work early, earlier than scheduled, maybe like 7, 7.30 a.m., scheduled to come in at 8. We all had a little key fob that we could let ourselves in. I, I go in and I see like Jerome already there authenticating early in the morning, already, you know, I, I see the verified rack and I just had a better understanding that we were all in it together. The group was just really special, right? Led by Dyson, Eddie, Vince, you know, the, the leadership that we had, but something inspired us to really, you know, give all of our time and efforts um, to make sure that we were helping uh, drive the business forward. Yeah, everybody uh, pretty much bought in and fed off each other. We knew in, in, in its infancy, like, it, the importance of what everybody played on the team, like the role they had. And everybody wore different hats. So, like, we as a startup, you got to kind of – you can't just rely on doing one thing So, and, or just doing the bare minimum. When Jason first started, we moved to an actual warehouse. So that's when I knew, I was like, okay, this thing is catching on. We can't even handle all the product that's coming in the, the original building. We had stuff lined up outside. That's how busy it got. So we had, like, literally in Culver City, Washington Boulevard, you see sneakers, like, literally outside on the – we covered it. But you're like, okay, it's getting it's, – it, we got to probably figure out this problem. And Who protected the boxes while they were out there? <laughs> I think Sand. I don't think Sand did that. For sure, for security, sure. Security, security guard send, yeah. plus marketing, plus yeah. branding, yeah. plus packing and shipping and, and doing it all. We all played yeah. our parts. It was, yeah, we're, the, the office is literally getting flooded with 20 by 20 boxes. Yeah. So we had to definitely, the original um, facility, so we definitely am happy we pivoted and got out of there. As the pioneer of the ship to verify model and authentication within the industry, Goat Group revolutionized consumer safety and trust, two things that the authentication team plays a vital role in helping to deliver. Here, Jason and Jerome shed some light on the first Black Friday in 2016 and how they worked with leadership to build out Goat's authentication model from scratch, with these early processes later evolving to become the standard for how all authenticators are trained today. So you guys start your career at this company. It's little known, becoming more known, and it's, it's all based upon this idea that we can verify the authenticity of the sneaker you're selling or buying. So what did it look like then from a ship to verify? What, what does that mean in 2016 when you started? And, and how does that look now from a global logistics standpoint? So maybe we'll start with, in 2016, I'm a buyer or seller. Where do you guys fit in into that? process. Yeah, so we'll be the middleman, right, to ensure that the the product or the sneakers that you sell and a buyer purchase is authentic. So if you when you list the uh, your your sneakers on the app and the the buyer purchases them, then you as the seller will get sent, you know, a label, a shipping label to get for those sneakers to be shipped to be verified or to be authenticated at one of our authentication centers. At the time, in 2016, it was in Culver City. So we'd receive, right, those sneakers um, from the seller. Seller would send it to us. We'd receive it, authenticate it, and once we confirm it's authentic and verify all the order information is accurate, then we would then ship it to the buyer, right? So we're really just middlemaning, brokering, and providing the authentication service. Um, Logistically, it's changed now, you know, just to get the order to buyers as quick as possible. But in general, right, that, that's the ship to verify model. Why was something like that, Jerome, so important to the industry, knowing that you were in, in, in the forums and stuff in early 2000 and you kind of seen this evolution? Why was something like GOAT pioneered, this ship to verify model, this authenticity, this safety within the marketplace? Why was it so important to people who are really passionate about this space um for one it just gave you the uh, allowance to see a lot more product and for two it limited the the likelihood of you getting a fake product at the time and also getting the product accurately because a lot of the time you buy product online or you meet up with somebody it's not exactly what you're supposed to be getting so being the middleman at goat and handling the product and kind of vetting through it making sure it's accurate authenticity size skew condition it it was great idea because no one was doing it at the time it was literally you just taking a risk and we just limit the risk for you we come from the aspect of everything is fake until proven real so it with that philosophy you're not 
overlooking things. You just like it's like a I give this analogy to everybody that we train, or if you train with me, you know this. It's like a court case. So you want to you want to find like all the elements to to accumulate your case to to come to the conclusion. So you're looking at all the details depending on the shoe, the product, the stitching, the smell, the texture, things of those nature. So before you pretty much come to your um, final conclusion, looking at like let's say a Jordan One since that's like a popular silhouette. Uh, for one, it's trickier because you have different grains of leather textures, materials. It's like it's not always leather; it can be suede, it can be durabug, newbug. Um, so when you're looking at a shoe, for one, you got to look at it from like what style code it is, and a style code is like those numbers that you have like on a on any uh, sneaker product or shoe product or any product actually at all. So you're looking at those things and identifying. Okay, I'm looking at a Jordan One um, band, and it's going to be all leather, and the the black the black leather and the mud guard should be this texture, this smell, uh, this fiber of leather. Then the, the grains on like the red, is, is it will vary. And then going back to the smell, you sniff a product, you kind of know what a Nike, general Nike product smells. Like I know this sounds weird because you guys look at the aspect, like, yeah, you're sniffing a shoe, feeling the rubber, getting familiar, and you should have like a familiarized uh, texture or smell because also these, these products come from uh, different pe- different places. So it can be sitting in transit. And so sometimes the smell is not always like your definitive answer always, too. So you got to use all your other senses. Yeah. So, Jason, what's a, a 350 smell like? A real one. What should it smell like? Yeah, authentic 350 V2, not too much of a strong smell. I mean, the ones in 2023 may have a more like chemical or glue smell. But from my memory, when I was more actively authenticating, it's just like a, like cardboard or yeah, just fabric. N- nothing. So if, if we smelled like that sweet chemical glue smell, that would be a red flag. What was it like, you know, in 2016 when you were trying to figure out what, what, what am I doing as an authenticator? Yeah, it, it was a lot different. And early training was uh, the authenticator who started on the same day um, as me. Him and I in a room with racks of sneakers that they hadn't been authenticated yet. I was focused on Adidas, so it would be like a rack of NMDs at the time. And we'd go through every, every product with a um, post-it note. And for every product, we were asked to just write down any defects they were identified, anything that looked off. And we'd do that for every single pair. And then we'd roll them out to Jerome, Dyson, and Vince. And then they'd go over, and then they'd actually formally like process or the, the products and go through our notes, but we would do that all day. And, you know, like one-on-one time um, that I was able to have with like Dyson um, and Vince. But, you know, even prior to my first day, I met with Dyson on a Saturday. Um, yeah, and he, my, my training, my learning began then. He actually uh, took the time to meet with me, you know, before I started. Um, he actually gave me a couple of NMDs to take home and he started to point out um, the checkpoints, I remember it was the paper at first, like he started with the packaging. Um, and then we went into the actual sneaker. Um, but just like, it was just a great experience. Like it was, I looked at him like Zen master, authenticator, you know, just teacher. I took so many notes. I have multiple notebooks. I'd have my notebook every single day, <laughs> bring it to my desk. And any note that I thought would help me remember a checkpoint for a later time, I would note. And that could be a little sketch drawing of a checkpoint. It could have been information on the size tag. When I first saw his notebook, I remember he'd just be head down <laughs> against the wall, if I'm not mistaken, like um, because the desk was against the wall, so he had nothing to see. I think we ended up moving that because, like, well, you want people to stare at the wall all day. That's but he had his head down, he was like, just be like, I'm like, what is he doing in there? He's like scribbling or. And then I remember one day I asked him, like, well, what's in your notebook? And I think he is right now all his. Uh, checkpoints and all the stuff for the the Adidas. I remember sometimes I had a little diagram, small little drawings, talking about like the the tab maybe on a, on a 350 and how many like lines it has on it, things of that nature. I began to do that when I began authenticating Yeezy 350s, um, just noting like production date, uh, UPC number, um, and just keeping a record of it so I could refer to it. And when we caught some fakes, I record that information. But it was just notes um, really on the product uh, the construction, any checkpoints, and little drawings or little sketches I could share with, like, a new team member. Um, so, you know, so when I was able to train, like, early on, we didn't have an LMS. Um, we didn't have anything really um, visual either. So a lot of it was just kind of, or, like, photo-driven, like, photos, was that drawings and just notes and just really word of mouth. At the beginning, 
they just trusted me everything Jordan Nike. So they like, you're the Jordan Nike expert. I was very, yeah, I had a really uh, long knowledge in that. So I was trusted with those products. So it was very easy. But then when it came to the first hurdle I had was probably training people. Um, I'm a, I, I love to help out and love the training coach. So that was not a problem. But like, how can I articulate these comp like these things that I see into like a lens of for for somebody that doesn't or never seen it before? So that was that was really tricky. Um, but it wasn't the wild west. There was no protocol. Do you know this shoe? Are you confident? Only thing was about it. Were you confident? Do not push it unless you're 100 percent confident. So early training was. Um, trying to break down in layman's terms, like what, what you're looking at and what are concrete things to identify when making a decision of a product. And also the psych- like the human element is like when you're authenticating, he's building that confidence is one thing. I always tell people that train or like, just, just be confident. Don't be overconfident, but just, just be confident in yourself that you trust the training. You know exactly what you're looking for. Don't overthink it. Did you have like posters of, you know, here's what a Jordan 11 looks like. Here's what you're looking for. Yeah, how did you, how did you pass your knowledge on to people so that they could do their job? We would do assessments, so we'll do like one on one spending time with them. We'll like have the person assess on a product to make sure they're ready to do it. Um, we did that a little bit later. Maybe I want to, uh, we start putting things on uh, documents and making sure people can reference them and, and be trained to identify and, rem- and memorize what they're looking for. And it always helps when you work with someone that's very passionate in the product. If you're not passionate, it's going to be TDS, it would be a job because the training, especially like the training back then, we had them in a room all day to train. That's like, I was like, looking back when you said that, I'm like, dude, why? Do you, that was crazy. So he's in the room, like probably look at the same shoe for eight hours. Yeah. How many times can you look at that same shoe? Uh, that, that was, so yeah, funny. we learned from that. So every, every like phase of people that we got in the company, we started learning from it, even from the training side. I, I was great because looking back on it, y'all gave us the time to learn. Because there was a lot of orders we could have, you know, QC'd or done some kind of fulfillment test. But you allowed us to have the time to check out all these sneakers, you know, what we thought of them. And then would, you know, help us understand, like, the construction, how to authenticate afterwards. So it was was great. So what was your first fake you found and how did you feel? The first fake I found was the flu game Jordan 12. Uh... Felt confident because I think it was a, maybe a couple weeks or so. I'm like, okay, where is the bad product at? Yeah. And then when you find one, you start finding more, and then you start feeling, building that confidence. Um, and, and in that way, you can learn from it as well because we're kind of challenged as well, like being the like the first, you know, the the front line. It's you're trying to identify commonalities between all the fakes. So once you got a fake, it wasn't just your job wasn't over. It's like, okay, what? Do, how do I study this fake? And what did they do right? And what did they do wrong? The first fake that I caught was a japan black adidas nmd i remember that for sure um but was a little bit uncertain at first it was a pretty bad fake from my memory um but you know it was the first fake that i had actually caught and the checkpoints that daishin and vince had shown me were all like true with this order i'm like oh this doesn't meet um the authentic you know the authentic checkpoints um so it was a mixture of like uncertainty but once i I knew it. Um, I remember like bringing it to them, you know, very happily um, and kind of proud. Like, yo, I, I caught this. Yeah, and, it, and it felt really great. It felt good. And, and Jerome was just like, great, man, next. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for myself, it's really protecting uh, the, uh, the experiences um, that people have with product that they love. And for someone to love a product and value it and for it to be fake is just I just don't think it's right. Yeah, you, yeah. you want someone else to have that same feeling yeah. that you had as mm-hmm. a kid with this special shoe to you. You want you guys are trying to protect that yep. in some way. Absolutely. Can you guys tell me about that first Black Friday back in 2016? So the first introduction we had with Black Friday, I know that um, we're doing a shoot for promo at GOAT. So it's pretty much putting items at retail on the app. So everybody had the opportunity to buy the most, you know, coveted or expensive shoes that released in the last, not even year, but years before as well. So you had like your Yeezy 350s and your Air Jordan, your rare Air Jordans on the app for for basically retail and other items as well. So we were like really getting put on the map at this moment. So a lot of places start hearing about GOAT. So at first it's like no one's talking about GOAT. And then you're walking around like a sneaker, uh, I don't know, forums or even in, in releases. People are talking about GOAT. Or you see people with their GOAT app on their phone. 
looking like about to resell stuff. So that's like when it started to balloon a little bit and kind of happened very quickly. Like I'll see one item shoe and it'll just be, that was the hottest release of that at that moment. Cause there's so many releases during the holiday. Mm-hmm. This is where all the companies are dropping all their holiday releases. Everybody's looking for gifts and then, you know, shipping's a hassle. So we're trying, I mean, I think we end up overnighting some stuff towards the end of the black Friday, trying to get the orders to people, you know, early in the company, trying to appease all the, the customers in your, Word of mouth is big, so you're spreading your your company around via word of mouth, and just with the good service. After Black Friday, I don't want to like breeze over it, but it was very taxing. But then after Black Friday, I feel like it took a while, maybe a month or two, before we finally caught up with the day. Yeah. That makes any sense. Jason could probably talk on that. Oh yeah, yeah. That Black that Black Friday time was was hectic and crazy, um, but also you know I, I look look back at it very like just you know with with happiness. Um, but yeah, with the, the the black the Black Friday raffle worked, right? Because it just increased the orders like crazy. It's really hard to describe how the warehouse looked. It was literally packed with racks of sneakers. That that room that Jerome was in, um, authenticating those um, Space Jam Elevens, literally filled. I don't know hundreds of pairs in there. One day, like seven hundred, and all day, the same skew. And for myself, Vince, and another authenticator, we, um, and Dyson, we handled the Yeezys. And so it would be Yeezys, 350 V2s, day in, day out, um, very similar skew. And we were like, I just remember being a few days behind, and we just chip away at it. I know we brought in, like, some temp workers to help us. And it was the first time I think we needed that type of support for, like, pack out for other fulfillment um, roles. Um, but some of them, like my favorite times of my working memories were during that time with like Daishin, right? And him just me asking him like, how did this get started? And him sharing me like stories um, of his previous experiences. And I remember during that time one night he showed me a video of a FedEx fulfillment center. And he was just pointing out the uh, conveyor system, the automation, the receiving lines. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's what we're going to set up our warehouses to be. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. But I wasn't sure. You know, our current warehouse looked like a, a corner of Expo. And if we look at our warehouses today, we have the automation. We have the conveyor systems. We have the, um, you know, printed the, pack the, the print and pack-out yeah. machines, auto-scan. So it was just great to, like, see a, a part of the vision during, like, hectic, crazy Black Friday night. And then two years later for that vision to come to life. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a crazy time. But I just look back on it with just, like, really great memory. Building on the vision of Goat Group's warehouse of the future, the company continued to grow and expand around the world, from locations across Asia and Europe, and most recently to Canada. Despite challenges created by the pandemic in 2020, Jason and Jerome remained focused on ensuring training, high standards, and company culture was instilled in every authenticator. So let's think about some of the international expansion that's occurred. We talked about in 2018, and then we go into 2019, you know, we, we move from a domestic into an international. Did you guys, are you the ones who go to uh, Hong Kong and train or do we have proxies? How do you know you're doing it via Zoom? How are you guys doing that or, or who gets to go over? I went to Hong Kong. I stayed there for a few months, uh, trained the team, uh, make sure they're up to speed. What we talked about before, they're really, that was a really great team. They were really hungry to learn what we always look for for our candidates. And they're successful. Um, what's the challenges were? We're opening <laughs> locations remotely during COVID. That was a big challenge. So we definitely and and Jason contested. He's he's always a, also part of the whole process going a, along the way uh, with the hiring process as well. But when it comes to training the team, we had to make sure we have like a, a regional authenticator. And a regional authenticator is literally somebody that's destined for that region. So like APAC is a large marketplace, right? So we have somebody in Malaysia, Singapore, Shanghai, Hong Kong. Um, I'm, I'm Singapore, I'm like, um, in Japan now as well. So we want to make sure that someone's there always to be a, that point person. How do you, how do you look at international expansion from a strategy standpoint, Jason? What's like the, what is the biggest driver and the most important thing for you guys to get right when you're looking at a new location? When looking at a new location is ensuring that the processes are standardized and the, uh, especially for quality. Right, that we are all working at the same level of, you know, level of authentication, which is going to be right the best. 
um, and that like the processes as trained um, as we learn and as we present them to new teams um, is is followed right so I think standardization is huge um, as we expand internationally um, you know the setup for the facilities are are done so well right by our operation leaders and team members but as far as you know ensuring that authentication is going to go smoothly highly dependent on the on the regional training team I'd say right Jerome and you know we have really skilled um, and really effective trainers um, that I think help ensure that you know that that goal is achieved you know you guys have talked about going internationally and, and making sure the culture of the company is is established and, and felt with new team members. How do you personally bring that to life? Yeah, for, for that, you know, being passionate about the work that we do as well, not only the sneakers, um, I think that really communicates, uh, you know, the message and able to kind of share with, with other team members as well, like um, that level of passion and not just for like the sneakers or the culture, but really loving what you actually do um, for work. So I think that's one way. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll piggyback off that and talk about um, our hiring process. It's, it's weeding out and finding the traits that kind of, you know, you, you can tell that person that has it when you do that. I mean, we, we built out like a whole um, hiring procedure. We handed all that stuff off in time. But initially, like, you kind of find those commonalities between each candidate when you, when you start. Because one thing I always told them, I never will sugarcoat. This, it could be a t- this will be a tedious job for you if you do not love what you do you can weed out people that would not do the job correctly because at the end of the day, it's going to be a service that you want to make sure that you, you cross your teeth and dot your eyes and do it correctly. So people that may be like, Oh, I'm pat- I love shoes right now. I'm like, it's a fly by night thing for me. I like it at the moment. And then like, well, I didn't know I'm going to have to do this. Like, mm-hmm. or do you do like the, the fellas and I and, and, and girls that did it early at goat, you're going through each product and you actually don't mind. No, having this isn't, this is effortless for me. I have no problem doing this. And you can kind of see that very early in your in the training process. Do you think there's a trait? You said that you would be able to see and weed them out. You know, to me, what comes to mind is someone who's attention to detail. Work ethic is huge. So it has to be a combination of the two. Attention to detail, I put under uh, attention to detail, work ethic, and passion. Those three things will make you successful. I always tell people, put your blinders on and focus tunnel vision. You can go places with that. But because, yeah, so I think for myself, I would say that. Yeah, and really agree uh, with it all. And especially with that last part, that focus, Mm -hmm. right, that attention to detail, the passion, um, but the ability to really focus in and just zone in on the task at hand um, just to make sure that it is completed uh, accurately and completely. You you guys both have just mentioned uh, focus, attention to detail, passion as things that make great authenticators. How do you guys see that, you know, from an authentication standpoint and a team member standpoint? How do you ensure that those values are across everybody? Yeah, to make sure that, you know, that those values are shared. Um, Not only do we, you know, look to really show those values through like every interaction and through the quality of work. um, But we'll also share with new team members, like specifically what um, GOAT Group's core values are, right? Focus, trust, resilience innovation, passion, right? And, you know, we have that at warehouses, you know, as, you know, in a sign. Um, a warehouse team member had even created a term, like an abbreviation for it, F-trip, super easy to remember, right? And we could remind the team, like, you know, it may sound like very warm and fuzzy, but no, like this is what our business is based on, right? The passion, we love what we do, the innovation. I mean, just looking around at, at the other teams on, you know, the the new ways to do like old processes is just so clear to see. Um, resilience, I think we've all seen that, right, over the past uh, few years. Um, and the other core values, you know, we want to really show um, in order for us to really communicate them so that, like, that culture, you know, whether it's in a U.S.-based facility or one internationally is the same. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really good time to get into – what does it look like in a warehouse today? You know, we talked about the small two-roomed office you guys started in, but it sounds like the floor is a lot of passionate sneaker, fashion, enthusiast types. 
it, so what's it look like and feel like in there today for the for the team who hasn't been in one of our warehouses, Jason? Yeah, today the the energy, the passion for sneakers and like that team unity is is there. The actual layout of the warehouse and like the how the warehouse looks like operationally looks a lot different right now. Just you know more efficiently laid out just for the workstations. Um, really 5S setups, everything is just really set up for, you know, efficient use, whether that's in receiving, fulfilling, authenticating, at inventory or any of, of the other teams, fulfillment support. Um, but as far as like that energy and focus on making sure that the orders and products that are authenticated are, you know, are correctly and accurately authenticated, that remains. Right. And if I step into a warehouse or a flight club, you just sense it, um, the seriousness, but also the fun um, of, of the whole job. Let's touch a little bit more on your roles and, and some of the teams that you guys are leading up. Can you take me through what the difference between auth strategy is and just general auth? Yeah, I felt like auth strategy um, was formed really, you know, under leadership of Vince to provide, you know, more of the uh, planning, um, a lot of training. Um, and what also came with me specifically was a reporting or performance evaluation. Um, Auth strategy also covers uh, marketplace listings. Um, you know, early on we were, you know, also working closely uh, with CX. Um, but I felt like we were providing kind of the roadmap um, and establishing standards and standardized processes for our authentication teams to follow in order for us to ensure um, that authentication again was you know, 100% accurate. Jerome, I know you're more on the training side. How did that start based upon the early days? Obviously, there was a necessity around training for the next person in just to, to instill the knowledge and make it consistent. Is that sort of how it is today? And, and do you see your role as that and your team's role as that? Or how has that evolved? Um, it went from it, it, its infancy. It was like very small documents. Um, obviously, we talked about the learning management system that we have, making sure we have like a portfolio of all this training content for authenticators to be equipped to be successful. Um, as we scale, not only do we just – we don't always try to stay the same. We want to innovate and try to incorporate new ways to make training better and more efficient. Um, so scaling as a company, what we noticed before, if we don't necessarily equip authenticators to be um, successful, it, it could like hinder the process when it comes to authentication. So we want to make sure that, for one, they're fully equipped for any challenge that they're presented with when it comes to authentication and up-to-date with the comms when it comes to new products because products come out every week. And we have to also pinpoint what is most important to focus on with training. So you can learn about, like, uh, Air Force One is not this, going to be the same as this new, um, like, Kith Air Force Ones that come out. So, the, like, the, the checkpoints would be different. You have, like, a kind of general knowledge but then we also have to give you the specific knowledge because the Air Force One is the Air Force One, but there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Air Force One. So always expanding on our our course content is is very important. So, you know, fast forward to 2023, we have over 200 authenticators yeah. near 20 facilities around the world. Now, when you guys were sitting there talking to each other, like, 2016, hey, we're both taking this bet. We're both going to stick around and just see how this goes. Did you imagine it to be in seven short years where it is today? I knew it would be successful. I didn't think this, it would be scaled that fast and be that quick overnight. Yeah, same. I, I, I believe that we were going to win and succeed, but to the, I guess, the magnitude that, that the growth occurred at, that was just, uh, you know, just I wasn't expecting that. I'm just really grateful to be a part of the process. The addition of Grailed in 2022 accelerated the growth of Goat Group's apparel and accessories categories that launched in 2019. Here, Jason and Jerome describe how their teams are addressing the challenges and revolving fake market alongside the company's continued product expansion. So 2019, you know, we, we look back a little bit. We talked about some ex international expansion. That was our first time abroad. We moved just out of the domestic operations. But we also expanded into an entirely new category outside of you guys' bread and butter of sneakers. Right? How do you guys prepare for that as individuals but also as a team? Was there a shift of focus? Was, did we 
did we just pilot certain people to go do these the, this new category, or how did you guys approach it from both an operations standpoint and a strategy standpoint? Maybe operations, Jerome, you can take, and, and Jason, you can follow up with some of the strategy yeah. side. Uh, operationally, uh, we definitely incorporated what we already did successfully with the footwear, not trying to change it too much. So we did find specialists that were that were actually interested in the position. We already had authenticators that were successful and trying to like incorporate what we have with our training and what we do currently uh, with the whole operation um, and making sure we take away from those bits. And obviously apparel's going to be different. It's a totally different product. You're not going to be smelling it, feeling for textured and stuff like that. It's a lot of screen printing. It's a lot of tags. So trying to see what we're going to be looking for and how it'll be different from footwear was like one of our first uh, challenges. And I think from a, a strategy uh, perspective, it was preparing for that authentication learning and training um, for the new apparel-based authenticators and, you know, the addition of specialists to help create some of the learning content for streetwear and luxury wear, um, also identifying, right, talent from within and, you know, also like the logistics of it, like yeah. what facility will be will they be at, what type of products we're going to initially um, offer. And I think that was part of the planning and really to strategize on how we were going to add apparel um, as a product offering. So, you know, you think about as far as the evolution of the industry now, do you think fakes is becoming, are becoming more rampant or are they becoming better? Or, or how, is, how is the fake market evolving knowing now and how are they reacting to the fact that there are people like you guys sitting in the middle to protect the consumers? Yeah, I feel like the fakes in 2023 are, are a lot better than the ones in 2016. Um, and so the authentication has become more challenging. Um, the demand for these hyped and popular products still remains. I think, you know, the fake market is providing a more affordable alternative. And as they become or look more authentic, I'm, I'm not sure if they also, you know, feel authentic as well. Um, I, I think they continue to be like, sought for yeah just as replacements if you're unable to get the more high-priced uh sneaker the the longer a, a shoe or a, a product is out does it become easier to replicate oh thousand percent definitely just be uh, why um just abundance um and it's fake markets are just just like us they're learning and they're sitting back dissecting exactly what it is and what makes a shoe fake so once they know like, okay, they're noticing this. I'm going to switch it up and start getting better at um, covering all these checkpoints that are pretty much alarming or big red flags. So just like we are learning and we're trying to be proactive in stopping it, they're being proactive in changing up their ways. It's like any, any industry, like in like the government, or, I always like to go back to that. It's like a good analogy. Like the, if you're trying to stop a thief from doing X, Y, and Z, and, that, and like, a, I don't know, fraud or something like that, they're always going to get better. Yeah. They're not going to stay doing the same exact thing over and over. It's, it's an interesting point. And, and how, I guess, I guess it makes me think, it, how do you stay up to date? And how does the whole team, and, and you guys can speak for the whole team, how are you guys constantly looking at research or, or how do you stay on top of that so you can stay ahead of these definitely fake, uh, fake companies who are doing this? So we also have a regional training team and also all of our thinners on the, authenticators on the ground are pretty much like closing the gap with the feedback loop and making sure that everybody's up to date, up to speed with all these new things and checkpoints. Because like you said, they, they change a lot when it comes to fakes. It's not going to stay the same. New market, new products, Crocs, all things like Solomon's, et cetera. They're getting really popular in the, in the marketplace. So we have to challenge ourselves and do a lot of case studying. We buy control products and make sure all of our experts that are handling these products are pretty much up to date and privy to the newest up to date uh, knowledge it takes to, to be accurate. In the river mirror, uh, over your time, the last seven years with the company, what would you say the moment or moments that have been your most proud? Early in my experience, being a part of the uh, expansion in New Jersey was just a moment I looked back on proudly on being part of really the initial growth, um, just where I was as an authenticator, just the excitement, the time, being able to meet and really get to know the, our, our new New Jersey team members. Um, and really the experiences I shared with uh, the Goat West authentication team during our travels is, I guess, one of my happier and prouder moments. And more as of recently, um, being able to work with Jerome, 
Vince, Marshall, Sam, and um, just other team members and leaders in authentication and operation to develop an authentication scorecard has also been a proud moment for us to use um, data to help steer training, coaching, um, and just to help, you know, improve uh, authenticator performance is definitely something that um, I'm proud of. And Jerome, what would you say your, your most proud moment has been over the last seven years? So many moments, so many great people. Just overall, outside of the people, meeting great people, learning a lot of things from different departments, things I never thought I would be a part of. I would say just making the team proud, authentication team proud. When I go to different facilities and have conversations with them, I always try to make sure I stop and give them recognition and because it's very important. I was there once upon a time and make sure they – that we we know we tell them that how important their role is and how happy we are and and grateful we are for them for what they do. I want to make sure of that and I like to the the feeling you get back from them, like that 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 real feeling like them just being overall happy, just to be a part of GOAT is is, is heartwarming for me. You guys along with some others, but the original team of building something that out of nothing, uh, a process and authentication system that was the first of its kind, the best of its kind in the industry now. And without the imprints of both of your your hands, I don't know that would be what it is today. So, you know, hats off to you both uh, from the entire company. I'll speak for everybody because I'm sure everybody would say the th- same thing. Um, you know, we looked, we looked backwards, so let's look forward. Um, the moments you've been most proud of, obviously, are, are really special to you. But what are you guys looking forward to most next? Yeah, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, expanding really our, our marketplace to, you know, include all the products that, you know, members of our community are looking for. I think we're in a great position, especially with the, you know, recent um, really partnership um, and collaboration uh, with the Grail teams and, you know, their offerings. So I'm looking forward to what that is going to evolve into. And overall, looking forward to the expansion of the authentication network, uh, more facilities, same with Flight Club, right? It would be great to see that also grow. Um, Alias, right? It would be, you know, just to see some more locations and just to have, you know, that brand also um, grow as well. And, you know, also with the greatest, like I'm just looking forward to see where, where, where that goes and what direction, you know, and, you know, how that's going to evolve. And I'm just looking forward to, to that progress. Great answer. Um, <laughs> the words out of my mouth. Thanks again to Jason and Jerome for sharing their stories. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of the Goat Group Perspectives podcast. We hope that Jason and Jerome's archives brought inspiration to you as we all collectively build the future of Goat Group. Join us next time when we'll hear from new voices and teams from around the company. 